Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'm going to be talking to Dr. Chris Bataille, who's an economist and economic modeler, about a scoping paper for the Canadian Climate Institute that was released yesterday. And it's titled Transition Pathways for Canada's Oil and Gas Sector. Now, look, that this may be, that's not the sexiest title, but this is really important stuff because we need to talk about how the oil and gas sector that is, and it's primarily in Alberta, but there's some in Saskatchewan and and, uh, and BC and Newfoundland, but it has to come, it has to transition to a low carbon future no later than 2015. It has to get started this decade. And we're not talking about it enough. And Chris's paper is one of the, the few that I've seen, maybe the only one that I've seen that actually really addresses this, the fundamentals of this question. So welcome to the interview, Chris. Hi, Mark. I'm great to be here today. Well, we're going to have fun with this. Uh, I'm really, really interested in this topic. I've been writing about it for years. Uh, but let's start with an overview of your paper, please. Sure. Um, you can break the paper down into two parts. First, that the oil and gas, well, let's with an introduction first, that the world needs to go to net zero greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 emissions by 2050 and greenhouse gas emissions by 2070 to hold to the Paris Agreement goals. Now, for that to happen, the transport sector, which is the biggest consumer of crude oil, needs to transition to something else. So they're going to transition, maybe like probably electricity and personal vehicles, some mix of hydrogen fuel cells and electricity and freight, uh, maybe some bio biodiesel, what have you. But what you notice there is that the fossil crude demand is disappearing. So there, there's a fundamental transition ahead for Canada's crude oil production industry and the gas industry as well, and they're a combined industry where they're going to have have to deal with falling if we're going to hold to the Paris Agreement targets. We're going to have they're going to have to deal with falling demand, probably at least an eighty reduction of eighty percent by twenty fifty, and how and then so you know. But to stay competitive during that process, they need to decarbonize their production. So everyone's going to be fighting to be the last produ the producer of the last barrel of oil, you know, and they're going to try to be the last one there. So eventually their production has to go to zero, but then what do they do next? What do they transition to? And that's the second part of the paper. What do they What do they use their skills, their capital, their managerial new, uh, news to, to make next? So let's talk about that. What do they transition to next? And, and I think for many of these companies, the answer is nothing. And literally, and I bring that up because the Public Policy Forum released a leadership blueprint, or blueprint for leadership, it's called. Mm -hmm. And and when, what it said was that the federal government should basically uh, fund all of the carbon capture, utilization, and storage that the oil sands industry wants, decarbonize it so that it then becomes cost and carbon competitive, then let market forces determine when it phases gets phased out. 
So instead of the, you know, the, the hard green argument, which is phase it out over 10 years with mm -hmm. government policy to get emissions down, but he would, this, this argument is, you know, just when it, when, when there's enough demand destruction and they're not competitive anymore, just let them fade away. And I argue that the uh, Alberta, uh, Peter Lougheed, former Alberta Premier Lougheed, 71 to 86, argued that the Albertans are the owners of that those hydrocarbon resources, and they should think like owners. And Albertans should not say that, okay, we'll just let this industry get phased out in 30 years or whenever it happens. They should say, what as you did, what is the next evolution? What's the next stage of a hydrocarbon industry in this energy transition and low carbon future. And, and you answered that. And what were your answers uh, in the paper? Yeah. So we'll come back to how you decarbonize existing production in a moment. And I think that's really important for the short run. But in the long run, what a lot of people are not aware of is a lot of crude oil is consumed for something other than combustion, for powering vehicles and what have you. It's to make plastic. It's to make chemicals, plastics, the material around us. If you look carefully around you, most of the stuff in the room here and that you'll encounter most has passed through the chemicals industry at some point or another. It's all been based on carbon chains and manipulations of mainly carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Now, when we make, when fuels don't come out of the ground ready to put into your car or put into an airplane, they have to be processed, they have to be manipulated. Um, and this is what, the, the, this is what the, the fuel production industry does and the chemical production industry does. They essentially perform Lego-like manipulations of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen to make what they need. The, the big problem with it is today is that the carbon comes from underground and it eventually gets oxidized with oxygen to make CO2, which goes into the atmosphere. And the hydro, the all three of them, the high carbon, hydrogen, the oxygen all come from the ground and end up, you know, as pollution one way or the other. Now, it's, it is within our existing engineer, engineering capabilities and within our existing science. And it's not that far off on the horizon commercially that you get the carbon from ever progressively lower greenhouse gas intense sources, right? So you, you reuse waste carbon, then you use biocarbon. Eventually, you take carbon dioxide out of the sky as the source. And then the hydrogen and oxygen in a, in a beautiful symbiosis can come from renewable energy. So say a windmill spins, you know, whenever it happens to spin, it produces electricity. You split water into hydrogen and oxygen. That's your, that's your carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen for making all the chemical feedstocks for the stuff that basically builds, create, that forms the, the material of most of our civilization. And it's, and it's the existing oil and gas and petrochemical companies that know how to do this. Now, Technically, they can do this, right? But the question is, will they reorientate onto doing this? Or do we need a new incumbent, something like what Tesla did to the vehicle industry in order to do that for us? I, I agree entirely. And what you, you're starting to see a little tiny bit of experimentation with that in, the, uh, in, um, uh, in Alberta. So for instance, capital power. Uh, which is one of the big elect electricity utilities is going to has a CCUS pilot project going on, and they're going to turn that captured CO2 into carbon nanotubes, which then will get made into materials like, uh, you know, uh, the shirt you're wearing, you yeah. know, those kind those kinds of materials. 
And and the Alberta Innovates, the provincial innovation industry, the old research council, is only a couple of years away from having a commercially ready process that will turn bitumen into carbon fiber. And viewers and listeners will have heard me drone on about this for for years. Uh, and now we're we're only a year or two away from 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 doing that. So. Will the will the uh, oil companies evolve into business models that will will not only supply the bitumen, but then take it and make the precursors and then partner with carbon fiber manufacturers to actually set up plants in Alberta to make it? I, they have no intentions of doing that. The current management uh, have made it very clear. And the one exception here is Suncor, which is investing mm -hmm. in some of these small startups, but, you know, not that many. The the management of these companies have made it very clear that their strategy out to 2050 is to lower emissions, lower production costs, and continue to compete in the fuels market. So to answer your question, there yeah. it is. So if that's if that's the business plan they want to follow, you might you might as well expect that co that company to evaporate. But the question I ask, and I ask on the behalf as a Canadian citizen and the citizens of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland, is that the future you want? What happens to your provinces after that? Right now, there there are options. Now, I personally think that mar the market forces are such that these companies will have to pivot, or an incumbent, or you're going to literally get business people and engineers from within those companies that are going to leave those companies and start new ones and do and do exactly the kind of things that I'm describing here. Um, how this plays out, <clears throat> we'll we'll probably find out through the 2030s. And a lot of it's going to be cultural within these big oil and gas companies. Are they sincere? Or do or do they become sincere about transition, about decarbonizing their production? Do they become sincere about transforming their business, their business case, the, the products they produce? And you know, and in the end, like this is not net zero is not going away. It's it's just going to get you know more. It's it's become more and more of a constraint. There's going to be more and more pressure to hold the hold the cap on our emissions and bring them down. Now, which companies win out of this, which labor forces win out of this will be determined by those those larger business decisions. In the short run, though, I do want to draw attention to the fact that there are several key things that need to happen over the coming decade. And the first and for the first the first and foremost is that the amount of fugitive methane, right, which is basically leaking natural gas that comes out of our oil and gas industry has to fall dramatically by at least 75% this decade. Now, this is not science fiction. This is stuff that can be done completely with existing practices, people just being careful to walk the line, scan them, tighten up all the nuts and bolts, wherever you're flaring, wherever you possibly can bring in a gas pipe so you take the gas for processing. The gas, it'll partly pay for itself in having more gas to process. Um, this this will improve the air in Alberta. It'll reduce. It, you know, it's going to reduce the toxics level. It's going to provide some level of employment. And what it does is it. it if the companies, if they're serious about this, it starts to change the internal culture within the economy within the company that they are serious about. You know, reducing their net GHG impact. The next thing after that is to start thinking about what do they do about their combustion emissions. And that's where things like the CCUS tax credit comes in, uh, electrification, process changes, what have you. But this stuff is all, it costs something like three to 10 times what fugitives controls controls do. The fugitive controls are cheap, 25 to, um, I think the IPCC came out recently 
it, roughly 20 up to you know up to half of it is net net revenue positive and then an, up to 80 percent is less than 50 dollars a, a ton carbon Okay, so uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on decarbonization because I've done a lot of interviews okay, about sure. that in, in other places. And and uh, viewers and listeners can either go to the podcast or go to our YouTube channel and, and find uh, quite a few interviews that address that, that kind of issue. But you introduced this idea of Alberta and the, well, not Alberta, but just Canadian oil and gas companies, most of them are, are, are located in Alberta, that become carbon managers which is a, a change in the corporate culture, but it's not just, uh, that certainly has to happen in the companies and the corporations, but it also has to happen in the industry writ large. And I would argue it has to, it has to happen in the policymakers and the, and in the political sphere. And, and Albertans have to start thinking about thinking that way. Canadians have to start thinking that way, that we're, this is not about just dig it up and, and send it off as, as, you know, mostly unrefined, to American uh, uh, customers, where their you know refineries were, well, they'll they're to turn it into into gasoline and diesel and aviation fuel. Now we're into managing carbon, and yep. what can what can we do with that carbon that sets the stage for the next evolution of the Alberta economy or the Canadian you know maybe Saskatchewan economy? And there is the Chinese are so far ahead of us in this. They're already taking captured CO2 and turning it into these carbon nanotubes and other precursors that then become materials. And it seems to me that if we're asking the question, what is the next step for the Canadian hydrocarbon sector? It's going, and as I have argued in, in columns, it is transitioning from producing feedstock for fuels to producing feedstock for materials. And low carbon fuels. I, I think materials is the end goal. I think the first thing right now we have the civilization we have, right? Where our buildings, our power are heated primarily with natural gas, all our trucks and heavy machinery is, you know, it's on diesel or you've got gas going into industry. It's going to take time to turn all that stuff over. I think the very first task for carbon, the very first, okay, writ large carbon management, manage, carbon management is about less carbon in the atmosphere, more circling around in uses and more back underground till we get to the point where we're putting more underground than we're putting in the atmosphere, right? Because we have to get into a net negative CO2 position by right. sometime after 2050 if we're going to keep the, the, the global temperature within a reasonable range and start bringing it back into a safe range. Like that has to happen. Now, what I would argue is that the, the we're going to need a whole lot of net, uh, climate neutral methane to replace the, the gas that's going into our buildings and our industry. We're probably going to need some climate neutral diesel to keep a lot of a lot of diesel. Diesel motors are used everywhere, not just in trucks and buses and what have you, but they're everywhere you need a lot of power in a remote location. We generally use a diesel motor. Eventually, we'll probably be able to replace those with fuel cells and hydrogen, but that's going to take a long time. The quick way to do this is start is to start you it's to start using low uh, low GHG carbon in diesel um a, a quick win that's got a lot of media that could that's got a lot of sort of would have a lot of media buzz is is net zero aviation fuel you know you start low, using low carbon um low carbon uh, low ghg carbon to make the fuel and then biocarbon and then eventually direct air capture carbon and the first company that can make reasonable costs 
um, synthetic aviation fuel, we also we call it SAF in the industry, from CO2 out of the air and back into a jet plane is going to make a lot, and for rough, maybe roughly double the, the current cost, is going to make a lot of money. Well, let's talk about that because uh, Suncor ha- is an equity partner in a company just that does exactly that very thing, the Lanzatech. And they have a, a, a sister company called Lanzajet. So they recently announced, and it was just late last year, that they're going to do a pilot project in Sweden. They're going to take, uh, they're, they're setting up the, the, the plant uh, in a small uh, Swedish city that has district heating. And so they're going to take the, the CO2 that's captured from the district heating. Lanzatech has a patented microbial conversion process. And it so you take the CO2, you take uh, a lot of, renewable energy uh and you take this process and what comes out of it is is sustainable is low carbon jet fuel and sas the swedish uh air um, airline is a partner in the project and so sas says that once this thing this is up and running in 2026 i think is the date they expect that it will provide 20 25 percent of their of the of the jet fuel that they that they use now suncor is a partner in this Got, mm-hmm. They're an investor, and so they. Here's a perfect example where the the one of the the big incumbents in the Canadian oil and gas industry has a direct pipeline, if pardon the pun, into new technology that it could, in partnership with Lanzatech, bring into the Canadian economy, and and this could they could do some of the things we're talking about. I have yeah, never the- I've never heard Suncor talk about anything about that. And you know, I suspect it, it, you go ahead. Well, no, uh, that's okay. You're the you're the guest. Uh, I'll turn it over to you. No, it, and it's interesting. The Lanzatech tech technology is interesting to me in that it, it makes use of waste CO2, right? So stuff that would have ended up in the atmosphere, it then takes a pass through aviation fuel and still ends up in the atmosphere. There's actually a Canadian company called Carbon Engineering that's just north, that's based just north of Vancouver. I, um, which takes CO2 out of the air, passes it through a process, and then and pass, maybe puts it into aviation fuel, could put it into aviation fuel, and then puts it back into the air. That's actually climate neutral fuel as opposed to the Lanzatech process, which takes waste CO, waste fossil fuel CO2 and, you know, at one remove still lets it into the atmosphere. It's a good thing. It's it's one good step in removing it. But where we need to go with things like uh, with uh, sustainable aviation fuel is something like, well, like what carbon engineering is doing. And that is a homegrown Canadian company that cannot get enough traction to grow here in Canada is ha- and is having to get most of its capital and do most of its growth in the U.S. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in direct, uh, uh, was it Ox- uh, Occidental Petroleum that's contracted? Oxygen. Yeah, it's that's it, contracted with Direct Air to go down and set up some of these plants in Texas uh, so, so that they can help Oxy uh, uh, arrive, become carbon neutral in its oil and oil and gas production. So fair enough, Chris. Uh, but I mean, you know, direct air capture could provide the CO2 uh, input into the Lanzajet technology. Yes, no, it could. Yeah. So none, of the- this, none of this is none of this is rocket science. This is all chemical engineering we've known how to do for 80 years in terms of manipulating carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen to make exactly what we need. What's just different is that we're using it, we're using it to reduce GHG emissions. And 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 to your to, to the uh, argument that's set out in your paper, 
is that there are all of these opportunities that are out there. And in Canada, we are not talking about them. We've got stuck on a couple of big ideas, as we always do, right? Hydrogen is the is the uh, you know the poster child for low carbon fuels these days, mm -hmm. and we're all in on hydrogen. We're going to export hydrogen, and we're going to do all these wonderful things with hydrogen. And we, in the process, it's like it sucks all the oxygen out of the conversation around what else could we do? Like, why do we have? Why do we? Why do we always uh, stop? Uh, you know, partway into the process, we take a couple of steps down that path and then we let everybody else run past us and win the race. You're asking a question that's that's been asked by Canadian economists and development special, specialists since there has been a Canada. Um, I'm sure you've heard the term hewer of wood, drawer of water. Stable um, species, tend, got it. Yeah, yep. we, we extract and process resources just to the point we can put them on a boat and then we send them somewhere. Um, that It's an excellent question. Why do we keep on ending, end up doing that? Um, you know, it's it's the least amount of effort. It raises a lot of resource rents. Um, you know, it's it's easy. It's 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 harder to make things like sustainable aviation fuel as opposed to create you know creating hydrogen or, or methanol and then shipping it to someone else who then does it. Right, and it's also it's also higher risk. Yeah, it's higher and, risk. And and Canadian Canadians as a rule are not uh, as uh, uh, we're more risk averse than. Um... Well, I, I, look, I, I let's not, maybe we should, uh, I withdraw that comment because we're going to go down a path that isn't germane to really yeah. the conversation yeah, yeah, we're having here. So let's, let's table that for another, another conversation. But the, the conversation that is germane here is that there are only maybe once or twice in a century where, where industries get restructured, energy systems get restructured, and you're presented with a giant opportunity. Mm -hmm. And and what your paper does is is kind of put some structure around what that opportunity might be, just how big it is. And and the other point that I'd like to make is that the opportunity, the window on that opportunity doesn't isn't open forever. Uh, you know, the Climate Institute and another study, run, uh, I think Jason Dion was the the lead uh, author mm -hmm. on it, made the point that supply chains are reforming at the global level. And they will, over the next eight to 10 years, solidify. And once they solidify, you get new players in and everybody gets scaled up and the capital has been allocated. And then breaking into those supply chains becomes really difficult in, a, in a, any significant way. So if we're going to do this thing that you and I are talking about, which is Alberta and Canada becoming carbon managers and, and doing all sorts of wonderful things with carbon that attracts capital and creates jobs and generates revenue for government so they can provide public services, we got to do it now. We got to start now. And you have to start, in my opinion, because government's going to play a big role in this, we have to start having the conversation. We have to, there has to be a conversation that begins to create the political environment that's conducive to doing what we're talking about. Now, would you agree or disagree? Uh, I would go even further. I, I think we need to have the conversation, but then we actually have to start. We have we do have a habit in Canada of doing a lot. We a lot of analysis and paralysis from analysis. We talk a lot. We do a lot of stakeholder conversation. We assess, we reanalyze. Re we have some of the best analysts, engineers, economists, et cetera, et cetera, scientists in the world. 
we have a hard time getting off getting off and start building things to do it like i would say if you really want to do what you're talking about you need to get into a conversation with westjet and air canada who are going to ask for things from the federal government things like tax credits that they start incorporating a certain amount of sustainable net zero aviation fuel in the in their jets and they start at half a percent one percent two percent and they start building um you know we do that with methanol we do that with hydrogen we do that with diesel um until the point where we we can do this ourselves and we built up the industry and once we've done that once we've shown we can do it we can produce a saleable product watch the investment dollars flow in right okay so so government has to de-risk this to some extent and it can do that by creating demand pull from existing uh industry players like the airlines that's yeah, the argument it's, it's, it's not just government though we have to think it's it's the firms and everywhere that this works it's firms and government working together this is the way the swedes have gotten the green steel so fast it's their they're very competitive steel firms steel and iron iron ore making firms working together with their government and their union to get it to happen the same thing needs to happen you know just in terms of the aviation fuel with air canada and westjet west westjet would be perfect because you know it's it's a very capitalistic Alberta, Alberta grounded, you know, uh, airline. It, what if Calgary was a sustainable aviation fuel hub in North America where it grew and grew really fast? Yeah, that's another point that you make in, in your paper is that we we need to develop these hubs. And now some of them are already uh, up and running. For instance, Edmonton has a petrochemical cluster. Uh, and uh, the government and the Edmonton um, Indust Heartland Industrial Region uh, is de they're deliberately planning and building a hydrogen hub. What other kinds of hubs would you? Uh, you I guess you just mentioned one for. Oh Calgary. yeah, I, when I when I think mm. the okay, this is one of the, the the problems I see in the discourse right now. People build CCS hubs, they build hydrogen hubs, they build you know district heating hubs. Uh, they don't they don't bring them all together. It's when you bring them all together that you really get the synergies, right? So, it, say you've got a you build Fort Saskatchewan in your Edmonton would be perfect because it's sitting right near a salt cavern where you could store huge amounts of hydrogen. So up on the surface, you've got blue, then green hydrogen production going on. You've got, you'd have CCS collection and transport to the Alberta trunk line. You'd have high voltage electricity passing through there. And you could have a district heat sharing system. So the waste heat that comes out of all those industries could be farmed using industrial heat pumps for all sorts of industries that just need steam. So like the, the heat pump would raise it from 50 to just over 100, 100 C. And you, if they're all roughly co-located, roughly within 50 kilometers of one another, they start to they start to synergize off of one another. And all you have to do is say this region is, it's pre-zoned for it. You start, you think about the mapping of where the, the CCO2 transport would go, where the hydrogen production and transport uh, and storage would go. The electricity lines are already there. It's, it's just a matter of making it all work together and you know there'll be a couple of anchor tenants and then you make space for new industrial tenants to come and set up shops okay <clears throat> uh, that's a that's a brilliant idea and of course we've seen that uh, those kind of clusters develop elsewhere i mean again the petrochemical cluster uh in in edmonton mm -hmm. uh, so cluster cluster <clears throat> excuse me clusters are are not a new idea they're very yeah. good they're a very good idea uh, the problem here, the missing ingredient, the secret sauce that we need, I think, Chris, is, is leadership. We need, we need people. Here's the parade. The parade is forming. 
no question about that. But right now it's a little parade and we need somebody to get out in front of that <clears> parade and lead it so that it gets to be a big parade and we get to, we get the route we want and it, it has all the pieces together that we want. And, but without that kind of leadership, we're not going to achieve the kind of parade, the size of parade and so on that we want. Uh, then a question I asked, where does leadership come from? Like Peter Lougheed did amazing things for Alberta. Imagine a Peter Lougheed for the early 21st century in Alberta. What would this person, he or she look like? Or what How would, what would they sound like? Where would they come from? What would be the, or their orientation? Um, th that's an excellent question. Uh, and I think it's, I think those people are out there. I, I think they're listening. They're waiting for their moment. Um, but they need to know that the public's going to be behind them for some risky decisions. Like net zero is highly necessary, but risky. Strong climate policy, industrial policy is is it's it's risky. It's got a long term payout. The payout is huge in terms of job, long term employment, uh, wealth for the wealth for the region. But it doesn't pay out in four years. It pays out over ten to twenty years. And you you need the public to stand behind these kind of behind governments that are making these risky decisions. Well, I, I would agree entirely with that. And I think that we've got some thinkers who uh, uh, from elsewhere who have are putting some some structure and rigor into that. And I think primarily of Mariana uh, Muzucato, I always mispronounce her name, but yeah. you know who I'm talking about, who, who has written extensively in the last five to 10 years about the entrepreneurial state. It's time to rethink our about the role of the state. And, and Lougheed in, in Alberta, was the personification of the entrepreneurial state. You know, he had public public ownership and he used policy and he used all sorts of tools, uh, policy tools to get things started. And he said very clearly, I've got a quote uh, on one of my documents where he says, we weren't a conservative government. We were an activist government that wanted to get things done. Yes. And we need that kind of attitude, that kind of leadership again. We need a government that wants to get things done. And is willing to look into the future and say, okay, look, we're not building for today. We're building for 10, 20, 30 years out. And that's going to take some investment. It's going to take some risk and it's going to take some vision. And we're going to provide that. And let's get all the other players together on site so we can get this, we can get this done. And and so I'm I I hope that you're right. I hope that there is somebody listening to this right now who is that person to provide the leadership. Uh, I just don't see it on the uh, I don't see it on the Canadian stage, and I don't see it on the Alberta stage. And so I'm uh, a little I wouldn't say I despair, but I'm chagrined that at this critical juncture in the history, you know, in the energy transition and the history of the country, we can't get it together. I, I, I am forever an optimist because if you can imagine it, it can happen. Um, it does mean some toning down of some of our politics, right? Because a lot of Canadian politics is drift. It's it's very much drifted apart. Like Lougheed was from a more centrist time. Like the left and right could could see each other a little bit more closely, right? The differences were were less cultural, right? So, but I, you know, I I am sure that there is a Marianne Mazzucato uh, of the of, for transforming the oil and gas industry to something to something sustainable out there um, and, and ready to go into leader into leadership positions in in Canada and our provinces at the federal level um, you know and potentially at the global level uh, those people are out there they but they they're not going to show their faces until they they know they can you know it's risky to get out there and put your face into doing doing that kind of thing to staking your career on it and they need to feel like there's going to be enough support to make it happen. 
Well, on that note, uh, I'd encourage uh, viewers and listeners to check out um, uh, Chris's paper. It's on the Climate Institute website. It's uh, it's a lot more accessible than you think. It's not written as an academic paper. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, actually, you don't have to be an economist to read it and understand it. I did it, for instance. Uh, so I would encourage you to read it. And 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 I think that ending on the 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 note that we did which is that, okay, we see the opportunities, we see, we see where they are in the industry, we see where things are, the, where, where the trends are. Now we need that missing ingredient. Where is it? Chris, thank you very much. Always enjoy our conversations. Look forward to the next one. My pleasure, Martin.